As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, uh, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And, jo- and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, would have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, so that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought the foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter-in-law, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David 
So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So it's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Time. Father, this is your word, and we ask that you would please speak to us. We know, and I admit, that I can only speak to the ears, and yet you and you alone can speak to our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that even through this sermon, these words of this weak and sinful preacher. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The fear of man is a dangerous thing. Proverbs says, the fear of man will be a snare, but he whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. And this story that we have before us here in 1 Samuel chapter 18 shines a bright spotlight on the dangerous and devastating effects of the fear of man in the life of Saul. The jealousy, the, freak, the fear, the murderous thoughts and ideations And in contrast, God's word shows us Jonathan, a man who has humility before David, a love and devotion, a self-abasement before David. These are two men, father and son, who are potential rivals to David following the defeat of Goliath of Gath, the Philistine champion. And yet these two potential rivals have two remarkably different responses to David, one of love and devotion, the other of fear and jealousy. And that's what we need to see in this passage today as we consider this passage where we see this rise in the reputation of the servant of the Lord, David, this hatred on the one side, this Fear of man driving him to hatred and jealousy, and on the other side, a love and adoration for David. Now, we'll consider some uh, important applications of what we just read uh, once we get to the end of this sermon. But first, we want to consider and examine the passage itself, and we can divide this passage in two. First, by considering the affections for David's soul that we see in verses 1 to 9, followed by the attempts on David's life in verses 10 to 30. First, we'll we'll see the affections for David's soul. Now, David had just defeated Goliath of Gath after 40 days of taunting this Philistine champion. David had defeated him in but a moment, and it was natural for the people of Israel to have strong affections for their champion who had been victorious. But what was remarkable was that Jonathan had affections for David. Jonathan himself had been a man of valor. You might remember that just a few chapters before, Jonathan himself had led a a raiding party of two. He brought his armor bearer and went and fought against the Philistine garrison and was victorious. He showed courage in battle to defeat Philistines with his holy imagination, and yet even Jonathan... All of his courage and valor, even he wilted before Goliath, but not not so David. He saw David show more courage than he. He saw in David a man after his own heart, a warrior who was victorious, valiant, and Jonathan loved him 
He loved him, it says, as his own soul. He saw a kindred spirit, another man just like himself, even better than he. Uh, we, should, we should pause ever so briefly uh, to consider and acknowledge the fact that this love that Jonathan had for David has been used by some as a biblical defense for homosexuality. And we can say emphatically that nothing could be further from the truth. And what our, our culture struggles with is that it has confused true relational intimacy for which we were designed with a warrant for physical or sexual intimacy. That is to say that our culture believes that if any two individuals share any amount of intimacy of relationship whatsoever, that provides a warrant for physical or sexual intimacy. Or to put it another way, for those who by their conscience recognize that such sexual intimacy is reserved for the bonds of marriage, it causes a fear of too much intimacy, too much relational intimacy, too much closeness. But what we can say clearly and emphatically from Scripture is that God has designed us to be in intimate relationship with one another, to have a transparency before one another, an openness, a love, a brotherly affection. We are to draw near to one another. We share in the same spirit of God. And so we're called to that type of relational intimacy, while at the same time, God has reserved physical intimacy for the bonds of lifelong covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. And homosexuality distorts not only God's good design for marriage and sexual intimacy, but it also distorts the relational intimacy and union that we were designed for one another. And as we see David and Jonathan, we see that Jonathan had a true and genuine and deep love for David, which was good. He loved David as his own soul. That is a pattern for what our relationships ought to be. There is nothing that hints in this passage at all that there was any kind of physical intimacy that they shared. But he loved him as his own soul. And it was a love that caused him to even deny himself before David. We know that because of this covenant that he forms. He initiates a covenant, enters into a covenant with David. And we don't know the details of this covenant or what all is spoken of, at least not at this point. But what seems to be clear is that Jonathan is handing over to David his princely rights. Now, Jonathan, as the son of Saul, would have been next in line for the throne. But in this covenant, it says that he took off his robe and he gave it to David. That robe would have been his royal robe, his, a sign of his royal authority. And it's as if he's handing it to David and saying, no, you are the true next in line. You are the true king. Take my princely rights. And he takes his weapons and his armor and he hands it to David as if to show all the warriors of Israel, no, this is your true commander. He is the man of valor that you must 
follow. And even Saul sent him out to battle with the men of war, and they followed him, and it was good. Everything was good. God gave him success wherever he went. It was good in the eyes of Saul. It was good in the eyes of the people. It was good even in the eyes of Saul's servants. All was good. Everyone loved David. And it was so good that they began to sing songs. It says, as they came back from battle, the women enjoy over the triumph that God's people had over the Philistines. They began to sing songs, and they took their instruments, their tambourines, and they sang to one another, and they sang this song. They said, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, it's very likely that these women meant no disrespect to Saul. Uh, Hebrew poetry, and songs are really just poetry set to music, Hebrew poetry uses a device called parallelism where there are uh, multiple lines that are put side by side and they can do different things in side by side. And one of those things that it can do is amplify, uh, give greater emphasis to each of the lines. Uh, One one example that uh, you're probably familiar with is in Psalm 63, a beautiful example. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There is poetic fullness. Not just I seek you, but I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's to the totality of my being, which is longing for you, like it's thirsting and hungering after you. There's emphasis to give poetic fullness. That's probably what these these ladies had in mind when they were singing this song, really just exalting. They were joyful. They weren't looking to tear anybody down. It was Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens thousands. Not just thousands, but ten thousands. Saul and David, they're working together. But poetry is sometimes confusing. It's unclear. Perhaps their song was worded clumsy uh, at best, but Saul in his insecurities, as we all tend to do, he heard what he expected to hear. Samuel had told Saul, he said, the Lord has rejected you as king. He is taking the kingdom from you and he's going to give it to someone who is better than you. And that's what Saul heard. He said, "They they think that David is better than me. What, what more can he have than, than, than the kingdom? And he was displeased with this. And he grew jealous of David and the affection that they had for him. And it says he kept an eye on David from that day on. But not just kept an eye on him, but as you sit, we, we heard, his thoughts became consumed with David, he started to ideate how to bring the downfall of David. And as we move from the affections, we start to see the attempts that Saul takes on David's life. And there's this repeated pattern of three different attempts that Saul has. He's consumed with David's downfall. David, who had done nothing but good for Saul, but now Saul is seeking his downfall. And each one of these attempts, there's a pattern. 
or Saul plots. Often it says, it shows us what he's thinking. Saul's thoughts are consumed with this. But then David escapes. And then Saul is overcome with even greater fear. The first attempt is, of course, with Saul's spear. David was, like he had been before, playing his lyre in Saul's presence. And that gives us a, a glimpse in David's character. David had just defeated Goliath. He was the champion of Israel. And rather than promoting himself and exalting himself as the commander and the new king, he went back to service, back to his humble place where he was playing his lyre to calm the troubled spirit of Saul. Only this day, he's playing the lyre and Saul turned his raving, murderous thoughts to David. And he had his spear in his hand and he thought, aha, I will pin him to the wall. And he picked up his spear and he hurled it, he chucked it at David. Only David escaped. He evaded the spear twice. And then the Lord, the Lord was with David and Saul saw it and Saul was afraid. He was afraid because he saw that now the Lord was, was protecting David, enabling him to escape. And he remembered that the Lord had departed from Saul. And so Saul's second attempt was, well, I will remove David from my presence and I will put him into the battlefield and perhaps, surely, he will die in battle. And so he did. He removed him from his presence, set him over thousands, and yet it had just the opposite effect. David escaped again. Wherever David went, he had success. He was victorious. And Saul saw again that the Lord was with him. And it says, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But everybody else loved him, Israel and all of Judah. So then there was one more attempt. And Saul thought, well, I will involve my daughters in this. I will use them as bait so I can capture David. And I hope you can see that there is a downward progression of, David, of Saul's wickedness. Because now he's beginning to involve other people. Here is a, a father who should be loving his daughters and protecting them and caring for them. And instead he is using them for his wicked purposes. There was a 19th century commentator who pointed this out. He said, Nothing shows a wickeder heart than being willing to involve another, and especially one's own child, in a lifelong sorrow in order to gratify some feeling of one's own. And such was Saul. He was willing to use his daughter's to accomplish his wicked ends. And he begins with his daughter Mirab. And he says to David, here, here you, may have, you may have my daughter as your wife, and you may become my son-in-law. I will esteem you in such a way. Because he thought, or he said, well, with one condition, that you need to go and fight the Lord's battles. And you need to fight my battles. Go out and fight. Because he thought, well, I can't stop him. The Lord's not with me, but surely I can send him in a battle and and he'll be killed there. But David escaped again. He escaped with his humility. He said, who am I? Who am I that I should be the king's son-in-law? I'm, I'm nobody. That's not, that's not a privilege that I take of my own. He rejected it as an honor too great for him. And so when the time came for Merab to be given to David, he, she was given to another. 
But Saul had a second daughter, Michal, and she had eyes for David. She loved David. And when it was told to Saul that she loved David, Saul perked up. You could see the Grinch-like smile start to form on his face as a plan hatched in his mind. And he said, yes, I will give her to him and she will be a snare to him. By that he meant she will be the honey to draw him into my trap. Only he learned from his first experience from David's humility. And so this time he used his servants to... Uh, communicate this plan to be messengers with a flatterous message. They, said, they, said, they came to David and they said, David, the king loves you. All the people love you. You should become the king's son-in-law. And again, David said, does this not seem like a small thing to you to become the king's son-in-law? Who am I? Who's my tribe? I'm just a poor person with no reputation. And they brought the message back to Saul, and he said, oh, very well, you know, this is, let's, let's try this. Tell him the only bride price that I require is a hundred Philistine foreskins. See if he's willing to earn the right to be my son-in-law. And they brought the message back to David, and David's eyes brightened, and he said, deal, I can do this. And he gathered his men and went out, and they killed 200 Philistines. And for the joy set before him, he endured, he scorned the shame of the task. Not simply just gathering his men to hunt down these Philistines and to kill them, but to circumcise their dead bodies, to do a full accounting of these foreskins, to collect them, to transport them back, and then to present them before the king. And you can imagine Saul's stunned look as the trophy collection was set down before him. And yet he had no choice but to give him Michal as his wife. And so she became David's wife, and she loved David. And Saul became even more afraid because the Lord was clearly with him and nothing could stop him. And as we consider this passage, there's just a few things, a few points of application that we can draw out. I want to, I want to, I want to highlight three, three things that we can see from this as we consider our own growth in grace. And the, and the very first it's probably the most hidden of them all, and that would be just the Lord's hidden hand of protection that he has for his people. Saul was actively plotting and attempting to take David's life, and yet David consistently evaded because God was with him. God protected him. There, He enabled David to escape the spears. He enabled David to be safe on the battlefield. He enabled David to, to find the, the 200 Philistines and to have victory over them. And God was with him each and every time. But for David, David was, was probably largely unaware of all these attempts. God was protecting him just through his providential protection. And beloved, do you know that your 
Heavenly Father protects you in ways that you are not even fully aware. You do not know the attempts that have been made on your life, on your reputation, by your enemies. God has promised to be with his people. If this was not just something for David, he's promised that for each and every one of his children. Jesus said, not a hair of your head falls to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly father. And that's a sound protection. The, the times when you have, you or I have had to face affliction or suffering or unpleasant circumstances, those have all been in accordance with God's good, pleasing, and perfect plan for you. But he promises to protect us and to preserve us unto the end out of his sovereign love, which actually gives us greater appreciation for the life of our Savior Jesus Christ because he endured the most awful of atrocities. He was afflicted. He was arrested, he was tortured, he was put to death. And for a time, he was able to evade capture and he was not uh, affected. But it was at the, the Lord's proper time, for it was the will of God to crush him for us and to put him to death. And so we can look to God's sovereign protection of us, even when we are not aware of it, as a source of comfort. Secondly, we need to look at Saul as a mirror for the dangers of a jealous and coveting heart, and particularly the fear of man. Saul wanted the praise and the honor and the respect of the people, and yet David had it. And so he was jealous of David. David was the one that everybody loved. He was the cat's meow. He had the Midas touch. He was, his name was echoed in each and every chorus of every song. And Saul couldn't get away from it. And he coveted that praise. He wanted that affection from the people. And it consumed him. It consumed his thoughts. And he became murderous and despised. And the more and more he plotted murder, and the more and more he thought about it, and the more that David escaped from those plots, the more he hated it, the more he was afraid, the more it consumed him. And beloved, it, it is a natural impulse for you and for me to love and long for the praise of people. We want to hear praise. We want to be adored. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be obeyed. Those are good desires. And yet, we can give in to a fear of man when we look for those things as absolutes that we must have as something that other people give us. And the, the, the impulse, the controlling impulse to be driven by those affections, those desires is so subtle and yet so 
strong. And it's so pervasive. Seems like every relationship that we are in, we are longing for these things. Spouses covet the attention or the praise that their spouse gets from other people. Kids can covet the attention or affection that their parents give to their other spouses or their other uh, siblings. Parents even can covet the affections of their children that their kids give to other things. Or we covet the gifts that uh, some are given as though recognizing that gifts, these gifts are from God, almost like God is playing favorites. We covet the the things, the circumstances that other people have that we don't have. It's easy for pastors to covet the, the gifts or the ministries of other pastors or even churches to look at other churches and see the blessings and the gifts that God gives to other churches and say, well, what's up with us? What's going on here? And left to ourselves, left unchecked these Covetous impulses can consume us and can just drive our hearts, take all of our time, and lead to death and destruction. It can cause these, as James says, cause these quarrels and fights within us as we want something and we don't get it and we kill and we covet everything that drives us to this. And we're not so bold as to pick up spears and start hurling them, but we hurl words that are sharper than spears sometimes with our gossip, with our slander as we seek to destroy reputations and tear other people down. Brothers and sisters, what are your thoughts consumed with? Is there someone or something that is consuming you with jealousy, or hatred, or anger that's causing you to plot, be consumed. We are commanded to speak evil of no one. And beloved, if you recognize this covetous heart within you, know that it is something that is common to man that each one of us struggles with, and praise God that the Lord has revealed this and shined his light shown his light in your heart that you would see it, but deal with it biblically, repent of it, and turn towards the Lord in love. Love does not envy or boast. Love your enemies, pray for them, give thanks to the Lord that he has given his blessing to them, and be thankful for all that the Lord has given you, for he has indeed blessed you and has been kind to you as well. Third and final thing we want to uh, take a look at from this passage is simply our own reception of the Lord Jesus Christ, our relationship with him. As we look at this passage and we see the reception of David's rise in his reputation, there are only two responses. There is one of love and there is one of hate. There is adoration and praise and then there is aversion and hatred. But David is merely a foretaste. He's he's pointing ahead to his great son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ is amplified that love and that hate. There is either undying eternal devotion or there is absolute aversion. And so we need to consider how do we respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? The natural person apart from the work of the Spirit, who we all are by nature, are just like Saul. We have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it could be even either a just a complete disinterest in the things of Christ, or it could be an outward aversion or hatred to the Lord Jesus Christ, either an internal thing or even an outward spoken or acted out hatred. And isn't it true that we, all mankind, has every reason to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ? There is nothing that he did that deserves hatred. He came and he was perfect. He hurt no one. He only brought blessing. He brought salvation. He brought the truth. He brings wisdom. He brings glory in himself. Why is it that the natural person hates or disregards the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the most excellent of men. And perhaps, perhaps... It's something similar to what we see in this passage between Saul and David. Perhaps there is deep in our hearts a covetous nature that the natural man has towards the Lord Jesus Christ. A warring that we all have against the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has and who he is and what we want. Because he is declared as perfect. He is declared as truly wise. He is declared as the only one who is good. He is the one who is declared as the only one who is lovely. And we want some of that. We want to be good. We want power. We want wisdom. We want people to look at us and say, that's the man. That's the woman. Or maybe it's the things that he, he demands for himself. All glory, laud, and honor belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. Every knee will bow to him and him alone. He is the only one that is deserving and worthy of worship. He will give his glory to no one else. He, there is no greater love than his. Only he must be obeyed without question. And he is the only one that owns our hearts, that deserves our complete and undivided heart's devotion. So much that he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He said, you must love me above all else. Oh, but we, we want to be loved. We want that devotion. We want that respect, that honor, that praise we want. We want worship. But only he is worthy. Only he deserves it. Only he demands it. And he says that anything else is sinful rebellion. And so we covet. We hate. And beloved, if 
You detect that in your heart, and it's there. Understand this, that just like David evaded and escaped, was successful in all that he did, understand this, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be successful. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord, Lord who has been established with all power in heaven and on earth. It's been given to him. The kings of the earth set themselves against him, but he laughs. He will be victorious. He will have all of our praise and worship and adoration. But here's the good news of the gospel, beloved. Jesus Christ is not stingy. He's not self-centered. All that goodness and holiness and power is in him. And yet he gives it to us. He, he, he lavishes it upon us. He gives us his goodness. He gives us his wisdom. He gives us his love. He gives us even his crown of glory. And that's, that's the glory of the gospel, that all these blessings belong to him, and yet he lavishes them on us. He, he told his disciples uh, the night he was betrayed, he said, all that the Father has is mine. He said, it all belongs to me. But then he said, when the Spirit comes, whom I will send, he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. That's the good news of the gospel, beloved. In Jesus Christ, everything that we want, which belongs to him, he gives to us in himself. That's where we receive it. Not from stealing from God's praise and glory and authority, but out of obedience to him and in Christ Jesus. He gives us everything that we want, everything that we need out of his fullness. Or as Paul said, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, everything that we want, everything that we are looking for? And beloved, that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. And so in one sense, a very real sense, faith in Jesus Christ is like what we see here in Jonathan. It is us stripping off the robes of our sense of authority, our sense of glory, our sense of setting ourselves up as king and handing it over to the only one who is truly worthy to be our king, the true king of kings. It is handing over to him our weapons of war and entrusting ourselves to him to protect us by his power and his might. Because what Jonathan did in that event was an act of faith. As one writer said, he said, this deed on his part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ, who is truly Israel's king. Beloved, that is what faith is. Trusting in the true king. Have you done that? Have you given over to the Lord Jesus Christ your very being? But also understand this, the glory of the gospel is that what Jesus has done for us is also what we see in the person of Jonathan. Because his coming to be like us was him removing his royal robes and becoming poor and of no reputation so that he could clothe us with himself, with his glory 
and his loveliness and his goodness. And that's what he does. He has given us everything out of his love for us because he loves us as his own soul. He has given to us his weapons. Those are his weapons. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, the very word of God, his weapons for his glory to fight his battles. Beloved, he has loved us and he has given us everything. He's given us himself, his heart, so that we would be his. And so, beloved, I hope you see that our coveting, our striving, our warring, our, our clinging to those things that we do is so foolish. Because here we are, mere, mere creatures, striving with the Almighty to grab hold of things that don't belong to us, fighting against a God against whom we will never prevail. When God himself has offered these things to us freely, that we would merely take them in his Son. Oh, beloved, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Receive him as he's, as he's been offered to you. Receive the life and the joy in him that you've been offered in all of its fullness. Kiss the Son. Love him with all of your soul, with all of your heart and mind and strength, and rejoice in the wonder of his strong and eternal and boundless love for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us yet again of your love for us in Jesus Christ. Would you forgive us for our striving, for our fear of man, for clinging to those things and making idols out of these desires, these things that belong to you. Thank you that you lavish us with every spiritual blessing in your son, Jesus Christ, and help us to find our fullness in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.